just past 7 o'clock and love this time of the week. It's time for Ira on Sports, True Oldies Channel. I'm Mike Balsamo. Going to be a big show today, Ira. And you were uh, kind of busy the last couple of days, weren't you? Well, it was a busy <laughs> week and it was great. I mean, two there was two big NFL games this week. One on Thursday, one on Sunday. I was at them both. One in Minnesota, one yeah. in Tampa. I mean, the temperature in the stadium was about the same in both places <laughs> because Minnesota was inside. Outside, it was like 15 degrees. So, but it was just great to see. And what were similar about both games, huge comebacks. At halftime of each, you'd said, this game is over, mm -hmm. it's whatever. Just big comebacks, and the team that had the lead held on at the end of the game to win. It was, so many people told me, you know, because um, Thursday night, people go to bed, especially if, you know, things start getting out of hand, but you made a mistake if you if you slept on Ben, and that game went down to the wire. Well, there game. were fans in the stadium that left in Minnesota, too, really? so there were a lot of people when, when they're up 29 nothing in the game, and it's cold, and it's Minnesota, and it's a Thursday night, people leave the stadium. Yeah, we were, um, you know, talking and saying, you got kind of lucky because there were so many games that were blowouts that you got to, you know, the two games you were at happened to be the best games of the weekend, hands down. Yes, I mean, both came down to the last play of the game. <laughs> um, Dan Shaughnessy is going to join us here at about 740. If you Google him, you've seen this man all over sports media for the last two decades. Tell us about him. Yeah, well, he wrote a book called Wish It Lasted Forever, Life with the Larry Bird Celtics. He was one of the top writers for the Boston Globe. So he covered the Celtics. Now, he covered the period, the Celtics, this is when they won three titles, actually the two and three years when they were the best team. And so they were sort of there before the last dance. And talking about Bird, Parrish, McHale. And one thing writers back in those days in the 80s got is they were, I mean, the stories in the book were great. I mean, could you imagine going to the airport and just seeing LeBron James just like sleeping on one yeah, of the chairs. Right. I mean, it's just unheard of. And and our go to, like there's a bar in Milwaukee that I went to and the, the team would say, well, let's just go to the bar and just watch a game. And things like that, of course, would never happen today. Much more accessible. The Very much accessible. Uh, even though we have Twitter and Instagram, we're more accessible then for some reason. Um, Ira, you're wearing a hat from the Celtics and it's, uh, you can see this right now on your social media at Iron Sports. Look them up. But so you... Well, this is a Celtic Laker, but it's yeah. from 2010. It wasn't yeah, from not the, the same era. It, <laughs> was not this. It was a. It was a. It was a Kobe Bryant error against Kevin Garnett and Ray Allen. But I. I, I wasn't. I wasn't going to games back then. No. So that was. That was back when. Uh, that was back when. Right before the games were on tape delay. So it was like that was. It was very much much. You know, years it goes. And you know what? The funny thing about it was Shaughnessy was covering, and we talked about it in the interview. But he was covering the Celtics at the time, and in the middle season, the Red Sox opened. They said, "Do you mm -hmm. want to go?" I'd rather cover the Red Sox. So he stopped covering with one of the best basketball teams of all time to then go cover the Red Sox, which would not happen today. Yeah, crazy how that uh, turned out. But yeah, Dan Shaughnessy joined us right about seven forty here on Ira on Sports. So let's let's talk about it. Let's go back to Thursday. You'd never been to this this new stadium yet, yet had you? And you were really blown away. It opened in 2016. It took cost a billion dollars. It's my 25th stadium. So I want there's 30 NFL stadiums because two teams have the Giants and Jets share a stadium, the Chargers Rams share a yeah. stadium. So I really wanted to get to the stadium. I heard so many great things about it, and it was a little tough to get there from here. I had to fly out of Fort Lauderdale. One of the things I won't do again is I won't fly out of Fort Lauderdale, fly out of Miami, and come back to Fort Lauderdale and get my car. That is a yeah, problem. That's that's <laughs> that, in the middle of the day that's a about an hour and a half trip it seemed like uh, but it was just great to fly in, in there and there was a lot of Steeler fans you know it was so funny it's, someone says you talk about Steelers all the time like are people so interested in the Steelers in Florida I, there might have been like I don't know, 75 Steeler fans on the plane flying there mm -hmm. early in the morning on Thursday. I went in there and stayed at this hotel, this Rand Hotel, which is pretty cool. Uh, and what is so cool about, about Minneapolis is that you can walk 
everywhere from the skyways on the second floor. So you go to these skyways and you go into buildings, all the office buildings have their lobbies where you walk through them. And now the challenge you should have, anyone should go, is try to like, when I was walking there, I thought it was gonna be easy. And I realized, no, this is gonna be difficult because you have to go like this, like it's like a, a mouse, like going through a maze <laughs> and someone knew how to get there. So you're just wearing like, I was just wearing short, not jeans and a t-shirt and a sweatshirt. And uh, so that it sort of showed me, but on the way back, I didn't know have anybody leading me back to my hotel was a mile away and I was so proud when I was able to somehow like I don't want to cheat I don't want to go outside in the cold and, and get back and that was pretty cool to go back but I for that game I, I, I pat myself on the back for getting great tickets but there is a ticket in that stadium the best place to watch a football game I think in anywhere in the NFL so most stadiums have 32 seats on the first level, and then they have the club sections go above. And there's always the debate because I like to sit close, get good pictures and everything, but like I do for Penn State games. But I like the club because you're you're elevated and you're not blocked by any of I the, love the club. <laughs> and, and you're not blocked by the, the, if you're down low, like I was for the Tampa game, I'm sort of blocked. I was like 15 rows up, but I'm still blocked by some of the sidelines. So something in the corner, it's harder for me to see on both sides. Well, I looked in these Minnesota seats and there's this club section in the second level, but in the first level is called the Founders Club on the Viking side. And it only had like 15 rows. And when I looked on the video and I looked at pictures, it was one of those things where I'm looking at the stadium, like analyzing, I'm like, these seats look amazing. Like they're right above the Founders. I'm like, it's like the Emperor's Box or something. <laughs> like when you go to the, like the Kravitz Center, you're sitting there and you're sitting, I'm like, these can't be good to true. And then I look at the pricing and they weren't as expensive as the seats below. Like they were like one third the price. Mm -hmm. And I was like, this is impossible. There's no way. And the one, the, the seats down below were, had field access, but it looked like it was limited. And, and I, so I, but I, anyway, I bought these. I'm like, let's see what happens. It was the second row. And I was totally 100% right. I have never seen, because I'm close to the fields and I, I feel like I'm right on the field. Like if I fell out of the seats, I'd fall like in the third row of the club <laughs> below me, but I was above all the people on the, all the players on the, on the sidelines. So it was absolutely amazing to watch the game. And I'm sitting there like this. And then they had a, the club called the Medtronic Club. Every, every name has a club name and it was like all the food you could eat but of course I don't eat that much so I don't get my money's <laughs> worth from the food and they have it all like Milwaukee like Bratwurst or I don't know Milwaukee I'm saying Milwaukee Minneapolis yeah. all the Minneapolis types food and stuff like that so it was really cool to be in there and see that and and the stadium I mean there were some qu little nice quirks first of all they they're everything is Vikings so they have this humongous drum and somebody bounds the drum all the time it's the biggest drum you've ever seen it, it's not really a drum and then they go skull which is the Viking uh, victory Mars yeah. thing. So they go skull, skull, skull. Then they, they, Vikings used to play outside like in the 70s. And mm -hmm. they play before the game starts. Like Jim Marshall said, when we played, it was so cold. And I'm like, I can tell because it was like 20 degrees, so cold outside. <laughs> and they're bragging, but everyone's sitting there in like shorts and a t shirt inside the stadium. So don't say how tough you guys are. But then they blow fake snow, like trying to give you it's the nice feel that it's not, <laughs> like you would, you would think they'd take the temperature down maybe 20 degrees. So I mean, that was pretty cool to be in there. I didn't find the weird thing about the stadium is they have one. It's it's the it's a fixed roof. The roof does not open. So I was at the Mercedes Benz and it opens. Um, SoFi opens on the sides, but they don't open. So the stadium, but on the one side, it's all glass. And so during the day, now at night we didn't see it, but during the day, it supposedly feels like you're outside because it's the entire mm. glass from the outside. And really so really cool. birds were crashing into it all the time. So they had to put some protection because birds would like crash into the whole thing. But. Um, <laughs> 
I didn't find the stadium to be overly loud. Like it was weird. Like maybe because the game was twenty nine nothing, but I just didn't. There were tons of Steeler fans and everything. But I remember I've been to SoFi, which I thought was loud. Mercedes Benz in Atlanta, I thought it was loud. I just didn't feel like it was so loud. Like it was just. It, it didn't just, seem raucous on TV. No, and, and and you've seen you've seen those playoff games. Remember the Vikings in the playoff games, and I I was expecting sort of Superdome, like really mm. inside loud. I just maybe my ears were clogged from flying. I don't know, <laughs> but I didn't. I'm, but maybe it was the score. But I just didn't. I didn't see that at all. Well, it was also. You know, you'd think it'd be a little crazier because I, I hate calling games must win, but this was really a game that both teams really needed. There was, you know, they were talking about maybe Zimmer losing his job after the game if they didn't win. And then, you know, what happened in this game? I always saw what it's been Mike Zimmer and the Vikings issue not being able to close people out and play four quarters. All their games but one have been decided by eight points or less. They've had four losses by three points or fewer. So when the score is 20 nothing, and all my friends are like, oh, you made a mistake. I'm like, wait, we are not <laughs> playing like Tom Brady, but then he blows the lead. I mean, we are playing Kirk Cousins. Like you have put Kirk Cousins, Mike Zimmer, and the Vikings all together. And it's so funny because when you're watching them and they're up to 29 nothing, and they're celebrating and on the sidelines, it's like you have done nothing. You have blown so many leads like you would think they would learn their lesson like yeah. even 20 like, they probably thought at 29 nothing like that's enough like it wasn't enough it's never enough like Vikings you guys are going to blow your leads and you see how they played in that in the third quarter just mm -hmm. stupid fun. like if they literally if Cousins would have literally just took the snap went on a knee they probably would have won the game for four possessions yeah. and, and it burned <laughs> like what two and a half three minutes every possession they would have won the game it was no it was crazy how that went and maybe the Steelers looked really bad in the first half, so I think they definitely took their foot off the gas in the second, and the Steelers did what they've been doing, playing really much better in the second half of games than the first. Let's go back to the beginning. The first quarter was kind of weird. Missed field goals from both kickers who are usually both reliable. I remember like, inside. Be, yes, inside. No end, yeah. Two reliable. Boswell's been great all season, and uh, so is Joseph. But, so... It started off a little sloppy, and I don't know. Like, this game might be a low-scoring affair. I was totally wrong. Did you see how, how Dalvin Cook, the running back for— So, first of all, Dalvin Cook, two weeks ago, was carted off the field. They announced that his season was probably over. Well, that was a great recovery. Yeah. He comes back. And in that first half, it, did it look like a high school football game? Because It, it was seemed, incredible. I mean, I thought he had runs of like 30 yards. I mean, there was a point. It was like high school because he had like, it was like eight runs for like 150 yards. Like yeah. that's what, and not, and no run was more than like, you know, 30, 40 yards. It was like every run, he was wide open and the Steelers made some shoestring tackles. Otherwise, I think he would have scored on every time he touched the ball. Like there was no defensive line. I, I, the Steelers, I don't know what they were doing. And then Justin Jefferson was just running all over, like wherever he wanted to run. Cousins would throw him and, you know, he's, and it was just, it was one of those things where a score could have been 100 to nothing, it seemed like. In the first half, yeah. I mean, no Adam Thielen, so it was a little bit of a different offense from them. They were showing, you know, obviously the replays on TV, and they were just, it was a perfectly executed plan by the offensive line. They'd have guards pulling, completely blowing you guys' linebackers out. It was just, every play, the hole seemed to be a mile wide. I mean, Refrigerator Perry could have ran through. <laughs> and then, well, he's pretty happy. And then, <laughs> but how about the sacks? I mean, I've watched Ben play a zillion, I don't think I've ever seen that. He got sacked by Harrison Smith, and I saw Harrison, you know, when you're at the game, you start to see Harrison Smith started like almost in the secondary. He was like running up mm -hmm. and then number 22 for the yep. Minnesota. And then he would run back. And then one time, so he would always like pretend like he was going to go and then back up. But this time he kept running. He might have been running like 20 miles an hour. The guy's like 250 pounds. And I can't believe, I mean, he hit Ben so hard. And Ben just, it's like hitting him. But like, if you have someone riding a bike at 20 miles an hour, mm -hmm. like heavier than that, like what would happen? Like, I don't know how Ben gets up from that. Like, I couldn't believe that he stood, he didn't fumble the ball, which is amazing. And then he got up. I mean, the sacks, the three sacks he had in the first half had to be some of the three hardest sacks I've ever seen. You may not have picked up on it, but his 
body language was not great. <laughs> I mean, after some of the sacks, he got up and just like rolled his eyes at how bad the line was. He ended up screaming at Mike Tomlin, too. Um, curse words, walking back after a, another sack on a third down. So Ben was, he was taking a beating out there. They, they, it was 23 nothing at halftime. They were out yardage 243 to 34. And it was like, it, I, it's just unbelievable. And then you know what's so weird about the game is usually like, okay, the Steelers made the charge in the second half. No. I mean, they start out, Ben got sacked again. The Steelers <laughs> had the ball the first possession, they get sacked again. And then a field goal made it 26 nothing. When they could have scored, to, again, that's where I think the Vikings sort of like let, they really could have gone up at that point, maybe 30 to nothing. You know, they only got 20, only 26 nothing. And then the next thing, what is it? Ben gets intercepted by Breland. So yeah. now they have the ball. The Vikings are first to goal in the night. They settle for another field goal. So it's like, two touchdowns and really having it like 37 nothing and ending the game it's only 29 nothing only 29 nothing but there's six minutes to go in the game and then I think the key play of the game six minutes to go in the third I mean in the third quarter third and two Pittsburgh had it on the 33 and Najee Harris gets stopped right on the line it looked like four people had him and I'm taking this picture and I'm like oh okay the Steelers will have to punt they're way back in their own territory Harris broke it seemed like four people had him then another people he just got that first down yeah. and by sheer willpower I, the whole team had him. It's like, we're going to give it to Najee. The offensive line gets out of the way. Najee, you have to go for you. I couldn't believe he got the first down on that. And then it was on, it was uh, second and 10 on the Minnesota 35 and Ben threw it to uh, James Washington. He lost two yards. So it had been third and 12. And then there was a taunting penalty. Like I, again, Minnesota just lost all their composure. You have it's third and 12. The Steelers are reeling. Why are you standing over Washington and taunting him? Yeah. It just, it's unbelievable. And you could see the Minnesota players were laughing about it even after the taunting penalty. They thought it was a joke. And it's like, why are you giving them any life at all? And then Ben went to Harris. They scored a touchdown with two minutes to go uh, in the third quarter, made it 29-7. And then the Steelers started Witherspoon at, in the secondary who came up with two big interceptions. And then again, why would you throw? So now it's 29-7, two minutes to, you know, two, uh, two, minutes, two minutes to left in the third quarter. Why are you throwing? You have yeah. Dalvin Cook who could just run all he at wanted. Will. What, why would you throw this long pass that got intercepted? That's a, I, one of these reasons why they keep saying Zim, Zimmer is on the hot seat because of these crazy plays like that. The, the game was just bizarre, but you got to still, you know, I, I told people right as the half ended, bet Pittsburgh second half, and they're like, you're crazy. I knew that they were going to come back and outscore them, but you know, what did they score? Three touchdowns in five minutes? I mean, that's just something. You got to give Ben credit. I mean, I don't, I don't want him to hang it up. It, it's, I think if they put some more weapons around him, Ben could could play another season. No, I mean they made it twenty nine. They go down and score twenty nine fourteen, and then then the Vikings. Their next possession was a minute thirty three. Like, what is going on with the Vikings? With these, these 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 they, it just, Dalvin Cook. Every time he touched the ball, could run. Zim, it, it was totally ridiculous. And then Steelers. Then they threw down Ben to DeAndre Johnson, and then Ben to James Washington. Touchdown twenty nine twenty, and uh, and then Cousins to Osborne. They threw. Then finally they completed their long pass. They made it thirty six twenty with ten minutes to go in the game. Steelers go three and out, and then. <laughs> What does Cousins do? Another interception. Yeah. Like it's like the Steelers got within like nine. It's like, well, maybe you're getting nervous about it. No, they're not. They don't care at all. Like just instead of running the ball, they threw another interception. Then the Steelers two plays to drive make it 36-28-28. And then the Vikings punted again. I mean, they were totally discombobulated at the end. They were just like, they were like a fighter in the 12th round, like holding on. Delirious, <laughs> yeah. So the Steelers then, and then of course the thing was, it was fourth and one. Ben throws it to Chase Claypool. 
And, and the times were oh, down about 26 seconds, and he's celebrating yeah. on the first down. And that became a huge thing in Pittsburgh because I was listening, you know, Pittsburgh Raiders. Because he wasted like five or six seconds. Instead of taking the ball and running it to the line. An offensive lineman came to rip the ball out of his hands. He said, then he blamed. He, yeah. Claypool said, well, one of my own guys ripped it out of my hands. He ripped it out of your hands. He you had the ball. Right. The clock, understand for the listeners, the clock was still running. There's 26 seconds left. You're celebrating. Like, I understand people celebrate. Like, on defense, and you said, there's certain times you can celebrate after interception. But in the middle, of the play you can't yeah. celebrate I mean it's, it's not it's on the, a two minute drill as the clock's running as the clock's <laughs> running down and so they got the ball and they finally did and they ended up they got it with, was a first down a 10 on the 12 Ben throws it into the Fryermuth and just gets knocked out great pass by Ben great pass by Ben almost caught by Fryermuth and but if they if Claypool doesn't celebrate they at least have a time for another play that was giving them another play and it's so it was a big criticism and, and Ben would not criticize Claypool but he says I thought DeAndre Johnson played a great game and James Washington played a great game. Yeah. He didn't say anything about Claypool, even though Claypool had caught way more passes than both of them. He did say, it's not my job to be doing this, kind of throwing <laughs> it on Tomlin a, a little bit. I can't believe, he must have got just bashed by Tomlin after the game. It says, Mike Tomlin's such a fundamental coach, and that was just, clearly didn't have his head in the game at that point. Well, I mean, that's what, I mean, I think that's one of the things, and, and I know Ryan Clark went on ESPN on first take and started blasting the Steelers because that became, Claypool has been known to do these things and not, and not block and fumble the ball and make mistakes, and, and that was just, there was no reason for that, but it's not, I mean, it's not his fault. I mean, they, you don't go down, and they lost TJ Watt in the middle of the game, but I did like, what I'm proud about the Steelers is they were totally out of the game, and they fought back, and I don't know how, like, that's what I liked about Ben. He threw for, he ended up what, throwing for 308 yards, three touchdowns, and Najee Harris played great. Like, the Steelers fought there. They didn't give up. And there's, you know, I, for Tomlin's credit, he says, look, we lost the game. It was terrible. It was a disaster. We should have lost the game. But I did like how they fought back, and I was really impressed. That for the, and if you're a Viking, I mean, the Vikings that first half, they look like they're going to win the Super Bowl. I mean, that yep. was like a, but the, if Vikings could play like that for four quarters, they could, be, they could beat Green Bay. They could beat Tampa Bay. They could beat all these teams. But that's why they're six and seven. 722, it's Ira on Sports, True Oldies Channel. Don't forget to follow Ira all across social media at Ira on Sports. See all these uh, great pictures and videos that he's been taking. Uh, do you want to move on to Tampa? And, yeah, let's go. Let's uh, Tampa go. and Buffalo. So this was the game of the week that everyone wanted to see because it's not only you know two of the best quarterbacks in the league and Josh Allen. Buffalo's coming off a loss to New England. Now they have to play Tom Brady. Um, let's talk about the, the stadium itself, though, because you love going to Tampa. Love it. I was last time I was there for the Super Bowl, and it was like a little different. Remember the Super Bowl? There wasn't that. I went two two times last year. I went to the Chiefs regular season game against Tampa, and there might have been like what ten thousand people at the stadium then. And the Super Bowl had I think what fifteen twenty thousand. So I hadn't been to the stadium in a couple of years when it was packed full. Uh, of fans but it was like it is so easy from West Palm Beach to drive there you just go there parking was $20 I, I mean I got a good seat I, I sat like on the 30 yard line on the, on the Tampa side Seems I liked, great. like to sit down low to see it and uh, hustled in there I mean it's a, it's a different stadium because it doesn't have high end zone seats like there's only maybe like 30 rows in the end zone so you really see everything like it's you feel like in your open stadium considering I've been in these dome stadiums you really feel like you're in an open stadium and they have a pirate ship in the one side which is pretty cool about that and it was it was like it, one thing about the stadium is is that when you get there the, it there's it's it is very much it's not as formalistic as the Heinz field meaning that like the players okay they do the announcements they don't run out like they're on the field and they just like wave their hand like there's weird things about that that are different in terms of how that's set up but um, one thing I noticed between Brady and Ben and warm-ups now is that when I used to go to games I love to see Brady because he would throw a million passes I'm taking pictures left and right Tom Brady for and Ben too in warm-ups they might throw of 20 passes like they are not throwing that they yeah. have coaches throw that because they're like why should we be throwing 
30, 40 yard bombs to backup wide receivers. Like it's funny, he'll throw to the start the top wide Godwin and Evans, but then when they have the other wide receivers run their routes, he's not throwing them up someone else throw the ball. That's not a bad idea. I mean, his arm's got a lot of miles on it. <laughs> right. And then I see Ben doesn't throw during the game, but Brady throws, but he's only throwing like little 10-yard passes. He's not airing it out. So why don't why not save your arm for that? So that's the one thing. So he sort of stands there and they have other coaches throw those balls. And that, that's why I like coming there. Or like I rush to the stadium, get my pins, get in the seat, go take the pictures and everything like that. So let's talk about the game itself, Ira. And I, I've been, before the season started, I was like, Buffalo probably going to represent the AFC in the Super Bowl. Five weeks ago, four weeks ago, I would have said the same thing. I don't think I can say that anymore. We were going into the half. Buffalo had attempted five runs. All of them were Josh Allen. They hadn't handed the ball off late yet in the second quarter. I just don't trust the balance of that team, and that's why Tom Brady and the Bucks went up huge in this game early. Yeah, I mean, Brady threw his 700 touchdowns for his career, which I was a stat. Then he had— he Tampa broke. Bay had a guy ready to get the ball from the receiver. <laughs> <laughs> and then he had 7,143 completions. And you know what's so funny is I think that his, his record against the Bills is 33-3 and as a Patriot and a, and a Buccaneer yeah. now. And that's almost exactly what uh, Aaron Rodgers' record is against the Bears. So, really? But, you know, we'd never think that Brady would tell the Bills. Like, it just shows you the different type of quarterback— and and they're both phenomenal and great. But I don't think Brady would ever tell the Buffalo Bills, I own you. No. Like that. He would never say that never <laughs> to the fans, years. to anything. Like he just, it mm-hmm. would, you'd never hear that from him. Um, but, you know, the Bills started, you said four and one, now they're seven and six. But this not having a rushing game is a serious, serious problem. And for having this great defense, Finally, you know, Fournette, like I'm there and I'm trying to videotape. I'm always deciding, like, do I take a picture or do I you know, do I take or I tape it on my phone? So take the Get video. two phones and do both. Well, I have two hands. <laughs> I can't do so much. I'm only one person. So but so the Bucks have it on the 47-yard line. They hand it off to Fournette. You don't expect Fournette to run through the line and score a touchdown. Mm-hmm. It was the longest run of the year they had for them. So they go up 7-0 fast like there. And then they go back down again and they get another field goal, make it 10-0. They get a field goal, make it 10-0. Um, but then... Brady threw it to Evans. That was a great catch he had in the end zone. Yeah. That was a perfect pass, perfect catch. Remember, Antonio Brown's out of the game. And then uh, third and two, Brady broke record. The broke the breeze completion, 7,133, broke the completion record to Evans on the sideline. And I heard Brady talking like he didn't even know. Like he says, I don't know what. I, if you ask me in the middle of the game how many yards I threw, he goes, I don't know if I threw 200 or 400. I don't look <laughs> at stats. At the end of the game, he goes, I look at my stats. But I don't look at it during the game. And uh, then they he rushed. He uh, snuck it in for a touchdown. And then the Bills, threw, then Allen throws his, inter, his interception. And uh, so it's 24-3 at the end of the first half. They were they were at first down 16-8 yards, 300-158. to 158. And it's just exactly, like it's not as, it's almost exactly like, the, really, about the Steeler game. Now you felt like, I felt like the Bills might be able to come back a little because of Allen compared to the Steeler offense, which has been struggling sometimes. But the fact is, is that it was a complete domination. But the but the Bucks then they even let up in the second half. N- yeah, the Bucks let up. They let the Bills back in it. And, you know, next thing you know, I had, again a lot of people that you know it's kind of later in the day they they turn the game off and then. You know, your phone starts blowing up that everyone's like, oh my gosh, what's happening in this game? You couldn't turn this one off and you were lucky to be there. In the second half, the the, the Bills try to fake punt, which you'd expect them to do something that in the, the first possession they don't get. It's third down and it's fourth and like five around the 45. Instead of go, I thought they were going to go for it. They do a fake punt. They don't get it. And then the Bucks get it and they go on fourth. They go on fourth. It was the weirdest play. They go on fourth down 
And Brady throws the ball, and it looked like it was intercepted, but it was intercepted. But in the middle of the play, he was roughed, and then they ruled that the roughing was after the play was over, which made no sense. Like I, I couldn't. I still read about that, and I don't understand why the Bucks wouldn't get the ball. I can't understand. Like, if you go to the sideline and like beat up Tom Brady, like does that count as like <laughs> when does the play end? Like when does the point? It seemed like that was the play. And I've watched for my whole life. I've never seen someone where they didn't keep having the ball. But then Allen had a great run, that 18-yard run right in front of me for that touchdown. That was that. He is so he's so he is so much power when he runs, mm-hmm. and he's also fast. And so it's like he's you know, he's like the size of Ben, but yeah. runs like five times. Not faster. fun to tackle as a cornerback. Yeah. And uh, but then you know Brady missed some passes. He missed one. He was third and seven. He missed a, a pass to Godwin. Um, made then it was. But then they went and scored a field goal, made it twenty six ten. But then the Bills went like you know this drive or two minutes. They scored a touchdown. But then Brady missed another pass to Gronkowski that would have you know extended the drive. And then uh, um, the Bills scored a touchdown. A few, another touchdown made it 27-24. And then, so again, this is what Brady is great at. I mean, they have the ball with like four minutes to go. They can just milk the rest of the game. And Milano, for the Bills, is phenomenal, that mm-hmm. linebacker. And he went and he sacked, he came in there and sacked Brady and forced him to punt. And that let the Bills come down and, and kick a field goal. But I got to give the Bucks credit because they were, uh, I think Knox was running in, it seemed like, for a touchdown. And they, I think Devin White uh, tackled mm-hmm. him, stopped him, and then forced him to go then for that field goal to tie to go to overtime. Let him score there, you know, then you're, and then they have the lead. It's Iron Sports, True Oldie Channel, it's 729. Uh, great reporter, writer Dan Sean, as he joins us about 10 minutes from now. Anything else you want to touch on in this game? Well, really, the end, the overtime. I mean, that Paraman play, uh, the Bucks have the ball to start the overtime. They don't score. I mean, the Bills do. And then the Bucks throw, and then Brady drives down there. And then I saw the play, like it was on the 42, and and I had, again, I got, that's with the camera, not the, I had my great picture I took of that. And I see Paraman cross, and I'm looking at him, and I was like, there's nobody on that side of the field. Like Brady read mm-hmm. that that play was perfect. Brady read it perfectly and he led How many times have you seen a crossing pattern where it's just a little behind or whatever and the, the receiver time. stops and and then then he gets tackled. So that instead of that being a first down, gaining 5 yards because it was like third and 3, suddenly that was not a, a 5-yard pass but a 50 52 yard, 57 yard mm-hmm. pass. And that's was the difference because he led him the right way and it was a perfect perfect pass. And it was great. And the stadium went nuts. It was a walk-off, as they said, a walk-off touchdown. So a great win there for Tampa. And now Tampa's positioned themselves because they have an easy, easier schedule. We'll see what happens with Arizona tonight. But Tampa could get the number one seed, and that means they get the bye. And right now it looks like the Patriots are one of the favorites to get the number one seed. Imagine that if, the, if Bill Belichick and Tom Brady get the only two byes going into this uh, playoff. Well, it would be better if you made it to the Super Bowl. And you have Brady. Then, then I would end it. Then you would finally <laughs> have Brady Belichick for the Super Bowl, yeah. the most watched Super Bowl of all time. Without that would have been tremendous. <laughs> um, let's touch on just a couple of quick NFL things. 37 people tested positive for COVID today across the NFL. Going into the fantasy playoffs, that's not good for anybody. Uh, Jalen Ramsey and Tyler Higby of the Rams both not going to play, in addition to Daryl Henderson tonight against um, against Arizona. So that game's already looking weird. The Dolphins, all of their running backs have COVID. So we'll see what happens with them. I want to say this, though. And I, I've been kind of campaigning for this. It's ridiculous. If you looked at Trevor Lawrence, Justin Fields, and Zach Wilson yesterday, they were all terrible, Ira. And this is now 12, 12, 13 starts for them. They were ready to bury Tua after like four starts in Miami. He'd only played 10 games last year, coming off hip surgery. If it wasn't for Joe Burrow and Justin Herbert looking so good, I don't think there'd be any issue with, with Tua. Tua looks better in his rookie season than any of these guys do right now, except for Mac Jones. It's crazy what he's been put through. 
you're and you've been on this point, and I agree with you because the fact is that. It, it, like last year, it's like, well, he's not the. If you if if you put Tua in Jacksonville right now, you would say, oh, well, they got to move on for Trevor Lawrence. Like no one in Jacksonville is saying we're moving on for Trevor no. Lawrence. Like they would, you wouldn't trade Trevor Lawrence for almost any quarterback in the league. You're not trading, you know. So th- the point is, you're you're exactly you're not. And Chicago's not trading Justin Fields no. for any quarterback in the league. And so, they both look terrible. <laughs> right. I mean, I mean, they would. I don't even know if you're Chicago, would you trade Justin Fields for Aaron Rodgers? Because at least you have Justin Fields now for how many years? Aaron Rodgers, you have for a couple. So the point is. That that the, you the but but for some reason Tua doesn't get the benefit of doubt and it just doesn't make sense yeah. and and again I I've blamed Flores last year for rushing him in and not leaving Fitzpatrick in moving him in out I thought it was a terrible t- they should have just they should have done a Patrick Mahomes the gap year let him sit maybe yeah. come into a game every now maybe at the end of the year there was no reason for him to play last year and I think it was a terrible terrible mistake on Flores' part I agree um a couple of games here real quick Green Bay like you said they play Chicago we know what happens when when that happens. Well, it was weird. I mean, I'm list driving home and listening. Chicago has the lead, and it's like you just felt that even though they're up by what 14 points, you knew that Green Bay was going to come back and, and run away with this game. And that's what I mean. Aaron Rodgers is just—he just knows how to beat Chicago, and Chicago has its problems. But I think Chicago—I think Aaron Rodgers by telling you know I, I own you and those things—he got Chicago to play. Chicago played hard, but it was still they're just—they don't have the talent that Green Bay has. San Francisco and Cincinnati. This game was pretty good. I it was the best game of the one o'clock, and Jimmy. Grant can really manage a game. He didn't do anything fantastic, but he hit every throw that he had to. He looked good. Well, I think, look, everything about San Francisco goes around George Kittle. If George Kittle is healthy, that is what Garoppolo, that's a security yeah. blanket. That is the blanket that he needs to have. The games when they lose, Kittle is out. The games they win, Kittle is there. And Kittle's or Kittle is not healthy enough. You know, there's some games where Kittle plays, but he's got just one yeah. bad. But Kittle was there. You saw the big plays. I watched the replays this today. And uh that's what that was a difference. And it was like in for Cincinnati's perspective, they got the lead in overtime, and then San Francisco was able to come down and uh and score. But uh as someone who had Jamar Chase on their fantasy team, it was nice to see that he finally in the fourth quarter started to play and made some amazing catches and Burrow played well in the end. I mean, Burrow leading the team back at the end. Mm-hmm. It was very, very good in the fourth quarter. Uh, let's talk about Dallas and Washington. If you just saw the 27 to 20 score, Ira, you think the game was close? It was not. It was 27 to nothing and Dallas kind of, you know, took their foot off the gas. Yeah, well, I think what the, the question for Dallas is, this division is terrible. Washington and Philadelphia uh, are just awful. And the Giants. And the Giants, and, well, the Giants are just beyond <laughs> awful. But uh, uh, so I think that's, a lot of people were criticized. I, did, I look, I'm, I like to say I watched the game. I didn't watch the game. People were criticizing Dak Prescott. I didn't think he played well in that game. But a lot of issues on the offensive line, too. And uh, Tony Pollard, who's been better than Zeke, he was out. So they, they had some issues. They got the win. Really strange game in York division, the AFC North with the, the Browns and the Ravens. Well, the Browns were were up, what was it? It seemed like the game was over and Lamar Jackson has heard it out of the game and then the Browns do what the Browns do, which is just play crazy. I mean, in the NFL, you can't give up onside kicks. You can't make mistakes like they did and they ended up holding on and winning the game but it's like, it seems like even when the Browns win, everyone's talking about Baker Mayfield, they're yelling and screaming, but our, <laughs> the thing is that Baltimore is 8-5 and five, and they're like, seem like they're losing everything at this point. The Browns are seven and six Bengals are seven and six the Steelers are six six and one so everybody's there yeah. we're all there and it's, and they all play each other the, in the four weeks the whole division plays each other so this is all anyone who knows how what's gonna happen this division the Steelers could end up 10 six and one or win the division by two it, games right now it's the hardest division to pick who's gonna win by far you you can make a case for all four teams it's 
It's going to be interesting. Like you said, I love when they play each other at the end. It usually works out that way. Um, Not much we have to say about these games. Giants looked terrible against the Chargers. They scored three touchdowns out of nowhere at the end, but this game wasn't really close at all. Uh, Broncos beat up on the Lions. That one was 38-10. to Any any other games you want to talk about? What I want to mention about these games that I find really interesting is that the Chargers and Giants, Chargers win 37-21. They had to win that. Like Again, the Giants are terrible. You cannot lose to them at this time of the year. You cannot lose this game. The Broncos beat the Lions 38-10. Doesn't mean the Broncos are good, but they can't afford. They're battling. This is a game. This is this is like that easy. It's it's you're just given a game. You cannot give mm-hmm. this away. The uh, Seahawks beat the Texans 33-13. They had to win. You know, these are they were 10-point favorites. You have to do this. And then uh, the Titans over the Jaguars 20 to nothing. They win there. These teams, the Jaguars, the Texans, the Lions, the Giants, the Jets, these teams are terrible. Yeah. Like, you cannot, as a contender, fight, you can't lose. So everybody held serve and they had to do. Now, I listened when I was driving there. I listened to the Panther-Falcon game, and I was all excited because I thought Cam Newton, he started out great, went down, scored a touchdown, ran for a touchdown. Third they, great on that first drive. They first drive, and they seem to have the game. And then he throws a pick six, and then it's like, oh, my gosh. It was, not a pick six, but he ran it back yeah. near to the end. And it was like another mistake, and it was just, oh, so Could you imagine being Cam, though, and knowing you're getting Hold with every interception. You can't play quarterback like that. Well, if they pull him and then they put uh, PJ Walker, PJ Walker in. in, and then they put Cam back in the game. They yeah. were back and forth. Like I'm like <laughs> when he pulled, and then I'm like trying to follow it. Well, you're. I like this. What I give Tampa credit. They had. They kept updating the scores. They kept the roads red zone channel there the whole time. So when you're in the stadium, you get there early. You can watch the games. I love that aspect of of, of that stadium. Rams and Cardinals tonight, Ira. What do you like? <sighs> I, I think I'm. It's in Arizona. I I think the Rams, with all their um, COVID problems, yeah. are going to hurt them. So I think Arizona plays well. I think Arizona win the game, but I'm not sold. I just it's hard for me to say. Oh, Arizona's going to win a big game. Like I don't know. Like I I'm not. Don't bet this if because I say it. But I think Arizona. If I had to you know had to say one team, but I'm not sold. Arizona to me and just. Not sold on them. I'm buying them. I would have taken Arizona before all this COVID. Now I think it's a touchdown game. I, I like uh, I like the Car- uh, Kyler Murray and the Cardinals tonight. Let's go to NCAA. You nailed the Heisman. What like eight weeks ago when everyone's talking about C.J. Stroud and you know before that Spencer Rattler. You've been on Bryce Young. You were right. Well, I it just I felt like. Uh, it was. It, I mean, he he won the Auburn. He won the he won in the Auburn game, and then he won in the Georgia game. So it really wasn't that an issue where I felt like that was going to be a situation. I, mean, I was surprised with the voting. I mean, he had Bryce Young for Alabama had 684 first place votes. Aiden Hutchinson of Michigan had had 78. So 684 to 78. And see, it, it seems like every year now a defensive you know player gets some some votes like that. So now you know maybe one year they're going to win. And then <laughs> and then Kenny Pickett of Pitt was third. He had uh, 28 first place votes and CJ Stroud was fourth with 12. Uh, Will An- how about this interesting? I thought the voting was it Will Anderson of Alabama the linebacker number he was just great linebacker for them. He finished fifth. So it is interesting that now with the three Alabama players last year in the top 5 and two in the top 5 this year, five of the top Ten Heisman in the last two years have been Alabama players. Pretty amazing. And yeah, now Alabama's won back to back. I mean, they went years and years and never had a Heisman. Now they've won two and oh, well, they've won. Now it's like he's fourth, so they've won four. And he could win one next year too. And he's back, right? The only the only person to win two Heisman is Archie Griffin. And what I love about the Heisman Award is that it is the most prestigious individual award. I mean, they have their own house, the Nissan Heisman House. So it's like I just like the fact. I just like the fact. It is the most prestigious award, more than an NBA MVP. I think maybe NFL. MVP. Masters champ maybe is up there. 
Master champ, you're right. But, but from now, like Desmond Howard, like when, when you ever announce this, like Heisman Trophy winner, yep. Desmond, like it becomes in front of your name, like doctor. You know, it's like Heisman <laughs> Trophy winner. Um, UM got their guy, Ira. They not only got the uh, AD of Clemson, which is a, that's a huge get. They got Mario Cristobal, a Miami guy, and they're already fired up here. They are, and they're paying him. We talked about, we didn't think that he would leave. We didn't think they would pay him the money. And somehow Miami hired the athletic director of Clemson and the coach at, at, at Oregon and paid him what, eight and a half million dollars yeah. a year. Uh, we Just shocked. But not only that, they're paying Manny Diaz money not to be a coach. So you're talking about its commitments of, of $100 million into the program. Uh, the facility, I mean, you have all this talk, now discussion, are they gonna build another stadium? I mean, there's so many issues that go around it, um, but now it seems like Miami now has some big backers and you're seeing a lot of people, you're seeing this, we're saying, where's this money coming in college sports? Why? Who's paying for all these salaries? School's not, it's it's, it's donors that are paying. And you see a lot of donors that it, the NFL might be too expensive for them to get involved in, but they can you know donate millions. You know, you need to be a billionaire to, to buy an NFL team and maybe many, many billions. Uh, but for the college, if you're going to give, you know, $100 million, it seems like you could have a say. And I think that's what is happening with these coaches. I didn't, I'm shocked by the size of the contracts. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, when you're Nick Saban now, I think like five or six people have passed you by. And so certainly Alabama is going to put them out. But um, it's, it, I, look, the, Miami has, they, they think, uh, you know, Cristobal was going to be the cure to solve. But they thought Manny Diaz, they were excited about that. And I was happy to see Manny Diaz now as the Penn State defensive coordinator. Cool. So I'm excited with that. <laughs> Worked out well. 741, Iron Sports, True Oldie Channel. We'll have Dan Shaughnessy on in just a minute. Don't forget, follow on social media at Ira on Sports. Let's talk a little Formula One. Well, we're going to talk about a robbery. Because that's what we had. Matthew Verstappen and Lewis Hamilton came to the race, uh, the final race. Now, he, Verstappen was on the pole. So he started first, but he had he started with the wrong tires because Hamilton tricked him to use the different tires when they did the qualifying. So the, at the beginning of the race, though, Hamilton takes the lead. Clearly, Hamilton had the better car. At the 18th lap, uh, Verstappen pitted. Hamilton matched him on the pits. They came out of the pit, and for, you know, and Hamilton is still four or five seconds ahead of him, not even close. Then they, Verstappen tried, pits again and goes on soft tires, so faster tires. Hamilton stays out on his hard tires, and the lead at that point was like 16 seconds. And then by with five laps to go, Hamilton is ready to win the, his eighth title, and uh, and so and he was uh, the lead was only twelve seconds. Like he, he wasn't gaining, so he had faster tires, newer tires, and he still hardly could gain on Hamilton. And then Nicholas TV Williams crashes his car. And then this is where the biggest robbery, I mean, if this happened in any other sport, people would just go nuts. So they told Hamilton, they're like, we're gonna let, there's five lap cars between them. So if they were gonna just keep racing how they're racing, there's lap cars in between, there's Hamilton, five lap cars of Verstappen. And they were gonna go and clean up the wreck and there's gonna be maybe one lap left. So why should, so Verstappen went and pitted and got new tires. But Hamilton's like, why should I pit and get new tires? There's no way he's gonna pass five cars to get to me. And that's what they said. But at the last second, they said, oh, those lap cars that are there get out of the way we went for stopping right behind hamilton so now hamilton who's hamilton had a 12 second lead mm -hmm. now with this lead is no no lead for is behind him and then all the cars that were between him were taken out of the way it was such a robbery because it's unfair to hamilton and clearly he was they was passed because he's riding on tires that he hadn't pinned for 40 laps and verstappen just got new tires i just think it's a joke i think it's terrible i've watched formula one i love it and it's unfair it's like i compare it to like in gladiator when uh russell crowe had to fight the, uh, the like the big um, the, the other uh, barbarians yeah. or whatever or but the, the one before and the, the okay. lions were running out after him it's like what were they going to do to Hamilton are they going to have someone like shoot his tires or whatever <laughs> like are they going to have people run and try to crash him like wh why would they it was just 
wrong. It's it was embarrassing. I think it was terrible. Hamilton should have his eighth title. There's no I don't like Verstappen anyway. He's smug and arrogant. But um they're all you have to be that to be a Formula One driver. But I still feel like this was ridiculous and I thought it was a robbery and Verstappen wins his first title and I just think it was wrong. There's no way those five cars had to like he was in seventh place. Who in what world do you then suddenly go from seventh place to second place just because the 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 uh, director, race director says that. And it, it violated all the rules from Formula One. So what yeah, crazy. Um, speaking of crazy, best female fighter of all time took a loss on a Saturday night. That's why I love watching. So I'm watching it. No one else, you know, they all think it's going to be a, a thousand to one, a ten to one odds against Juliana Pena, who was ten and four going into it. Amanda Nunes had won twelve straight matches, had won eight straight title matches, and not just one, but totally dominated She's these matches. Wasn't even close. No one was really paying attention. They walked in the ring. You could see the crowd wasn't even like sitting down there waiting for the, the, the co-main event. And but that's why you watch this stuff. That's the same. With it, with Buster Douglas, it's hard to keep winning every single time. And the Tyson, it's hard when somebody is game and wants to to go and challenge you. Now. Pena came in and she was running around the ring and she looked really confident. I'm like, well, everybody, they all look confident they fight Nunes. But it was weird. The beginning of it, Nunes hit her and I thought Nunes had a chance to be more aggressive and then Nunes did feel like, oh, I don't want this match to end so fast. I just want to, you know, let's keep it interesting. And I think that gave Pena a little confidence like, oh, well, this whatever. And then when Pena starts to hit her, Nunes, Nunes wasn't, it, to me, Nunes said, look, I prepared for this fight. I don't think she did. She seemed to just start brawling. It, every, she, she had no technique. It just looked like she didn't know what she was doing out there. And it was uh, it was like one of those things where she just fought a terrible fight and, and then Pena was able the first the first round just smash her. It was back and forth. They were just brawling. And the second round, she went and submitted her. And, uh, and it was over. And and I just think Nunes just was... I, look, she's never going to say I overlooked her. She overlooked her. That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> it looked like a fighter that went in there. She did wasn't trained right, wasn't in good enough shape. And Pena realized that this was my moment in time, my one moment. I'm going to take it to her. And that's what's so hard. That's why when you look at these teams and they're they stay undefeated or these players that's that it's hard to be on top for a long time someone's always coming for you um khabib uh the the great mm-hmm. he was able to do it i mean then he retired but the point is that some some people you you know you have to be so good but also so fired up and that's why they uh, and nunez i was shocked by this i mean this is one of the biggest upsets in the history of boxing or ufc let's talk about what happened to Oliverian poirier well uh, Poirier is the one, if everyone's familiar, who beat, who beat McGregor the last two times. Uh, Poirier's only loss recently was to uh, Khabib. Mm-hmm. So people really thought, as much as Oliver is a champion, people thought that uh, Por- but, uh, Poirier was going to win this. But the first round, he did this sort of the same thing Nunes did. He got into a brawling match when he wasn't thinking. He said, he goes, I don't know why. I, I knew I, I told myself I was going to brawl, and I brawled. And then in the second round, he, he got on the ground, and Oliver was on top of him. And people didn't know what Poirier was doing. And in the third round, he let Oliver jump on top of him. And Oliver leads in submissions, and he just submitted him again. So Poirier fought a terrible, stupid fight, yeah. and uh, it was bad. But I give, I give Oliver credit. Both Oliver and Pena had losses in their careers. They improved, got better, and now this is why they were where they are now. Let's go to Dan Shaughnessy here on Iron Sports. This is Iron Sports, 95.9, 106.9 West Palm Beach. Uh, we are honored to have Dan Shaughnessy, longtime Boston Globe writer, uh, who just uh, put a book out called Wish It Lasted Forever, Life with the Larry Bird Celtics. Dan, thanks a lot for coming on Iron Sports. Nice to be here, Ira. So people are comparing this book to like the the in, the inside story of the Celtics, the Larry Bird years, almost like the last dance with the uh, Michael Jordan years. Well, that's good. I was somewhat inspired by the last dance. I mean, when there was no games, you know, a couple of springs ago, and and we were setting our watches by Sunday night for ESPN to see the last dance. I 
you know, I kept being reminded of my years on the beat. You've seen my uh, 30-year-old self with the big hair and glasses sitting at courtside in the days before they sold those seats for so many thousands of dollars. The lowly media would sit right there next to the bench. And, and here in Boston, they were showing uh, the Celtics classics of the 80s in, in lieu of games. And same deal. I, I covered that team for four seasons. And Bird was MVP three of those years. And it was really kind of a coming-of-age time for the NBA. And uh, that's sort of what, what triggered, well, let's let's sit down and put these stories in, in place one, one time here. And, and I understand that this is old material that everybody knows who won the games and who's in the Hall of Fame and what the numbers are, but it really is, is, is about a special time and a special team and, and, and an era when the media, the, the print media especially, was able to tell you what the players were like because we were just around them so much. Flying commercial aircraft, waiting for bags, being in hotels, staying at Holiday Inns, going to practice on the bus, you know, all the stuff that doesn't happen today because there's a big moat that separates uh, all media from them. But uh, at this time, when the league was still kind of small time, there really was the ability to get out there and be with them and and tell the fans what what their uh, heroes were like. Yeah, and you have so many great stories. I mean, I was taking notes as I was writing, and I'm like, I just filled all my of your stories. And like, the one of them is when Kevin McHale, like one time, said to you, "Hey, Dan, let's just go watch Bruce Springsteen, and let's go do the concert." And you just jumped with him and go. I mean, you could imagine going with any current Celtic if you were covering the Celtics. Like, they would invite you to go to a concert. It'd be it's just impossible to even think that would happen. Yeah, we were with these guys all the time, and and there was a little bit of a connection there. But for some reason, in the the Born in the USA tour, you know, 84, 85, when Springsteen was on the cover of all the magazines and they really exploded, uh, there was a guitar player, still is, Nils Lofgren, and McKay was friends with him, a small guy from Maryland and great guitar player. And and uh, in Houston and Dallas and Atlanta, they were playing shows the same time as the Celtics were playing those teams. And so after seeing a couple shows, I know we were in Atlanta, and after the um, after the Celtic game, you know, they were setting up for the, for the boss the next night in the Omni. And Mikhail in the locker room said, I'm, I'm going over to see some of the guys, you know, you want to come. And so I know trainer Ray Melchiori came with us. And we ended up sitting, you know, at the atrium in Atlanta at the, the Hyatt. And, uh, you know, sitting around with Nils Lofgren. And, and the young singer, Patty, who became Bruce's wife, was sitting there. And, and you know, Bruce stopped by and he'd just come from the movies with Roy Bitten. And, but, yeah, it was, it was kind of... I don't know. It, it was a big deal, um, but and it just, just wasn't that unusual uh, kind of thing. And and I remember in the ride in the cab ride going home with Mikhail, I was like, "That's pretty intimidating for me. Uh, that's hard." You know. And he said he he never got that right way around famous people anymore. And I'm like, "Well, that's because you are one now. I understand that." I mean, yeah, you had so many stories where, like, when you tra- the team, I mean, flying commercial is just. To think that you, I could walk through LAX and just see Larry Bird sleeping on some chairs would be just, I mean, it just would never happen. I mean, you would not see any NBA star in season, out of season, sitting at LAX or any airport down here in Miami or whatever, sleeping on a chair, waiting for a connection, you know, being tired. Um, and you had some good stories about Bird. I mean, the fact that he, he even hustled you. I love that story about how one time he had his hand was bandaged and he said, I still shoot free throws. And I think he took $160 from you. He got me for buck sixty. Uh, it was a hundred free throws, five dollars a throw, and they had taped his 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 handicap was they they balled his hand up into a fist with with uh, tape, and so he was shot putting them from the line, and he soon figured out how to make it work. I think he had done this before. I was challenging his ability to play with tape on his hand in the game, but this was a real mummy job that they had on his fist, and 
yeah, he was able to adjust and figure it out, and he's putting them all through. And I was choking at the line seeing five dollar bills leaving my hand every time I let one go. But and I loved how you really provided insight into Larry Bird. I mean, he's not like some of the other superstars we had. I mean, here's someone who goes to Indiana, was there, what, 20-some days? And then I love the story you said about Quinn Buckner said, he goes, when he came back, he asked his brother where he was. He goes, I thought I saw him hitchhiking on the road with his clothes. And uh, But it was like, and then he spent a whole uh, time of just like doing odd jobs around and doing maintenance at parks. Uh, just not what we expect of someone who's an 18-year-old superstar high school basketball player now. Yeah, and he, you know, he he was uh, teaching special needs children and teaching driver's ed when he was a senior at Indiana State. So there's actually people, you know, driving around Indiana today in their fifties and sixties who their their driver instructor is Larry Bird. <laughs> <laughs> Wish I could have found one of them for the book. But um, and I think that was, and then you went into this is the red red hour back with the Celtics and, and near the end of his his whole career, but it was like his last, you know, put together in terms of drafting and, and how he constructed the team. And the idea to draft Larry Bird a year early, which we can't do now, you're not allowed to do that, but it was very intriguing in terms of him, how he went about getting Bird drafted a year early. It was a little bit of a loophole that, you know, because of the, what you referenced with Larry going to Indiana and then not staying and then going home and taking a year off, a gap year they'd call that now, but he ends up having a five-year career because uh, one year at IU, it didn't count, and then four years playing at Indiana State. So in his third year of Indiana State, he's draft eligible because his freshman class is now coming up for the draft. And uh, he was still a junior, and they knew that. And uh, other teams knew it when it, it came clear that they were thinking of, of selecting him. And he was pre-interviewed by, like, I think Portland and, and the Warriors and teams that had because red had the sixth pick and um if you were willing to take a chance you, you had to sign him in a year first of all you wouldn't have the player for a year and second of all if you didn't sign him by the next draft he went back into the draft so it gave the player an amazing freedom high risk for the team that, that picked him and five teams failed to do it because they were not sure they could secure his services he wouldn't give anybody a guarantee and that included the celtics so red took him a six figure and We'll, we'll talk him into coming here. And it went down to the wire. I mean, the next draft was coming up, and he was still you know, eligible to go into it, and Boston would, would lose a number, number six pick in the whole draft. And, uh, but they did come to terms. And, you know, Red guys, I think, kind of felt that the allure of, you know, the banners and the parquet and the championships. And, but he had to pony up, and Red didn't like that, but that's what got him here. <laughs> and then you talk about it, and this, this trade – the trade of Joe Barry Carroll for Kevin McHale and Robert Parrish. I mean, it's just, it might be the most lopsided trade in the history of sports. I mean, we spoke about the Herschel Walker trade in football, but this could possibly be that. I mean, how did that trade go down where they were able to get two future Hall wow. of Famers for Joe Barry Carroll? That trade makes your head explode because it involves Miss America. It involves Dick Vitale. I mean, it, it is Bob McAdoo. So, you know, the only, the governor of Kentucky was John Y. Brown. He was dating Phyllis George, Miss America. She likes Bob McAdoo. They went to a Knicks game, and he owned the Celtics. And so he said, well, I'll get him to the Celtics. So he gave up a bunch of stuff to get McAdoo, who ended up only playing like 20 games in Boston. John Y. Brown marries Phyllis George, sells the team, goes and becomes governor of Kentucky. She becomes CBS, you know, NFL Sunday, Miss America, and all that. Well, meanwhile, you know, Red's got Bob McAdoo for 20 games and then gives him up to Detroit, but Dick Vitale gave him the number one pick. And... 
the Pistons, you know, Frank then went out and won like nine games the next year, and that pick ended up being Joe Barry Carroll. So Red had that pick in his pocket, and uh, Golden State wanted Carroll. Red had the third pick in the country. Excuse me, Golden State had the third pick in the country. So Red said, well, I'll give you the number one pick, and you can get the guy you want, but you got to give me your backup center, Robert Parrish. So he gets Parrish and the number three pick, which ends up being McHale for Joe Barry Carroll, when he would have taken McHale one anyway if he'd kept the pick. <laughs> Parrish ends up being like a throw-in, and uh, the rest is history, of course, the greatest front court of all time. And then, you know, it's interesting, though. It's almost like when, when Larry Bird, people feel that, they felt that Bird and Magic started playing like like there was like eight years where they played against each other in lore when people look at memory. But really, it was the first four years the Celtics never met the Lakers in the finals. It was they had uh, they uh, they he won his title when they beat the uh, uh, Rockets in the final in the second year. So and they asked, and they have lost the Sixers twice. So it was sort of like that right. first four years when Larry only had that one title. But it wasn't. It was that that one title early on with Bill Fitch as their coach. It wasn't the. It didn't start uh, Larry right. Magic immediately. Yeah, they came to the league the same year in '79. Obviously, after the Indiana State, Michigan State, NCAA final, still the most watched college game of all time. Always will be. And uh, you know, Magic Larry was rookie of the year, and Magic won the NBA championship scoring like 42 is playing center for the Lakers in the game. Kareem was hurt. So, um, and then Larry won it the next year, but they played the Rockets and then magic got to the finals two more times. So they had both, they had both been in the finals. One or the other was in the finals, the first four years of their career, never against each other. And then you start the sequence and that's where the book, the book picks up because three of out of four years, they face each other in the finals. It was the alley Frazier of the NBA. It really brought the league into prominence because of the prominent players on both teams, you know, Worthy, Jabbar, Magic, Bird, Parrish, McHale, Dennis Johnson, etc. And uh, those matches end up being what's memorable. And, of course, ESPN did a great a great series on that. And another one coming up on HBO is Showtime now. And that's just a – that, to me, really put the NBA on the map. And, of course, I, I believe, you know, then Jordan takes it to the next level and you get the dream team and it becomes a global international entity that it is today. And you talked about that reboot, though, and how – Auerbach said, okay, I got Mikhail Parrish, and I have Larry Bird, but I have to bring in Dennis Johnson. So he's able to bring Dennis Johnson in, who is another Hall of Famer. And then he made a change in coaches to Casey Jones. And your book had some interesting stories about how Casey Jones and Bill Fitch actually got into fistfights. I mean, rarely do you hear head coaches and assistant coaches actually fighting. And that elevation of Casey Jones, and that sort of just set uh, the, uh, the Celtics on the right path in terms of making that change of coaching and going and setting it forward for that. Yeah, I think that, you know, I mean, everybody kind of learned the NBA shelf life with few exceptions. You know, you've seen it with obviously with Pop and, and some a few select guys, but it's three years after that, it gets tired for a lot of people. And so uh, Larry saw that with Fitch right away. Fitch is a Hall of Famer, and uh, he had had nine years in Cleveland, and he, he made Robert Parrish a Hall of Famer, and that team responded to him when they were all young. But then by the fourth year, that's when I came on board, it was it was over. They were tuning him out. And a change needed to be made. It was made. And Casey Jones ended up being the magic potion for that team, which is kind of roll the ball out and have faith that they would know what to do. And it worked nicely. That worked. And he had another Hall of Fame coach with, uh, you know, getting into the finals four straight years. Yeah, I mean, there's so many stories. That, and that when you follow the team, I, I mean, even the one story about the famous Bird-Julius Irving fight. And if you don't remember who Julius Irving was, he was Jordan before Jordan to some extent. And, uh, 
but they, you mentioned that there was only one official refing the game because the other official got hurt. They only had two officials. Could you imagine NBA game today having only one official between an NBA game? It'd be well, crazy. And there was so much going on in those games, too. You had Moses Malone and Ivoroni and Kale, and they, they were killing each other down there. So, yeah, guys were getting away with a lot. And, and the guy was Dick Pavetta, who, you know, was, he was the Barney Fife of, of the NBA. You know, <laughs> skinny little guy, run the floor, nice, nice man, but he was not a forceful guy. And then you talk in your book about uh, the fight. There was this whole infamous fight when, when Larry Bird in the 85, before 85 season hurt his hand. And there's a rumor that he heard it a fight at a bar, but he would always deny it. Like he would talk about every personal thing about his personal life, all his trials and tribulations, but would never talk about the fight. And then you reported on it. And then he had a fight with you about it. So it was, it was interesting, that whole sequence about working with, about talking about the fight with Larry. Yeah, the dynamic of reporter and athlete is always tricky. I never became real friends with anybody. And, they didn't want that, and I understood it. And, you know, that's why Larry, they called me Scoop, and Larry would say, Scoop, do you notice know how quiet it gets when you walk in the locker room? And I understood that. So they, they had raised eyebrows, and they saw me coming. And the, the bird fight, you know, I wasn't going to write about how many beers somebody had the night before the game. That's not our territory. But when it starts affecting what's on the floor, and I thought that the fight did because he shot poorly. They lost the championship. It was a chance for a title that they didn't get. And uh, his hand was messed up. And uh, there was an out-of-court settlement. It happened. He was embarrassed by it. He never spoke to me about it. Uh, this one reporter, a lovely woman who's passed on, Mary Shane, he did apologize to her and said he's embarrassed his mother and he had to be more careful who he was hanging out with and all this stuff. But it happened all right, and it, 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 it needed to be written. And that's unfortunate. And of course, it strained things with us for a good long time, and I understood that, you know, but uh, it still had to be done. And then your final year with the team was the team that some people believe, and, and I think you sort of hinted in the book, is the best team of all time. They were 67-15. and 15. They didn't know what record was supposed to be a record, or you said they could have won every game they played, um, and, uh, and, and they were, that's how good they were. That's when they added Bill Walton. And you showed in the book that Bill Walton was like the perfect addition to this team. And with McHale, it's like the timing of where he was. He was still healthy enough to contribute. Larry Bird was, had all his powers. McHale and Parrish were in their primes. And then you add someone like Walton with the good backcourt they had and the depth. It was like the perfect team. Yeah, I've got a video clip on my phone. Next time we see you, well, I'll, I'll pull out my phone and show you this. It's like a minute and a half of just the, the passing of that team. It's the greatest passing team of all time. Ainge would lobby to get in the games back in garbage time just to be on the other end of Walton's passes because he'd be on the floor at the end to give Parrish a spell. And, and it's just magical ball to watch. And, you know, I'm trying not to promote this book as it was so much better then. <laughs> so I'm trying to be careful. But you know what? It was better then. It was. And it was more fun to watch. And it, it wasn't a three-point contest and just launching from out there. There was a beautiful, you know, pick and roll and give and go and the picket fence and all the stuff that, that was magical about basketball. And, and I do wish it lasted forever, and I do wish I had watched more closely back then to the great ball I was seeing. Yeah, and, and I guess, you know, you end the book, it was almost a Sopranos type ending because then you, in, at the end of the season, or actually near the end, you know, started covering the Red Sox. So you, you went off the Celtic beat and made the choice to go, because as big as the Celtics are in Boston, you said the Red Sox are twice as big, and you and you sort of ended there. And, and But it's almost like, you know, the Lake, the Celtics made the finals the next year, but then uh, Larry's last year, so I mean, he never, that was his last title. He owned people, he only won three titles only, but that's still, it's, it's, it's his career was a little shortened in terms of the last six years he played. He only made one finals on any of those six years. Exactly. It's, it's, it's serious how hard it is to do it. He was MVP three straight years. And I think Wilton Russell, the only other two to do that. And, uh, 
it you know getting in the finals four straight years, being in five, you know winning three, that that's a lot. And but it's still it's not like Russell winning eleven and thirteen years and that sort of thing. And and it, it did it, it it came apart pretty quickly after I left. I, I saw the absolute height of it. I saw him you know win win those two championships, beat the Lakers in the finals. The only time they did it with Larry and Magic. And uh, and again, wrapping up with the greatest team of all time. The team that went 51 at home had five Hall of Famers and, and a, a team of roster that does translate into today's game. As as Rick Carlisle, who's still active in today's game, he was on that team. He'll tell you that. Mikhail will tell you that. And I, I do believe that the, the skill sets of those players, that team, do translate. And you mentioned, I mean, you hinted in the book that Len Bias, another person maybe some of our listeners might not remember, but he was a great, great college player. And he died only a few weeks after the draft. He was uh, drafted by the out of Maryland, um, and some people compared him to to Jordan. Uh, the point is that if he could have come to the Celtics and been that superstar Celtic player, that might have been a way to help. You know, where Larry could have been the comp. You know, as he got older, been the complementary player to Len Bias leading the team. Yeah, Bias comes on board. It, it gives that front court a lot more rest than the upcoming years because Mikhail had to play on a broken foot in the finals in '87 and. And it just it, it broke apart pretty quickly. They were never, they never won another championship. And uh, you know they would get to the finals and then come up short. But I, bias, I'd, I'd never put him as Jordan, but he he was a six eight guy and he could run the floor and he could he could shoot it. It was uh, he was the best player in the country. And because Red had the foresight to make a draft in the early days of the lottery, and Seattle went south after the draft after the dr- trade was made, they ended up with the greatest team of all time, and then getting the best pick in the country the same year. So. Red would often put himself in those enviable positions because he was just smart than everybody else. <laughs> well, and what is the reception? We're talking to Dan Shaughnessy uh, of his who wrote uh, "Wish It Was Lasted Forever: Life with Larry Bird." Celtics is available at all the bookstores. You should probably. It is really a great basketball book to read. Um, and just as much as you might say, "Oh, I know about the Celtics," there's every there, there's like 250 pages, and there's stuff I learned in here and small little stories. But what's the reception of the book from the Celtics, from the players? How have they received it? Uh, you know, I'm hearing pretty good things. You know, Cedric Maxwell, he gave us a book blurb for it. And Larry's agent said that they got it there. I doubt, I doubt I'll hear from him, but, you know, all everything in there is true, and he knows it, and we had a lot of fun. And, and uh, you know, Danny Ainge has a copy. Brad Stevens sent me a nice note on it. And we've been on the bestseller list up in Boston for three weeks, and I'm hoping we don't run out of books because it's, it's, it's i got to say, the things people love this book, and I'm happy uh, we're able to get it out there, and it's been wonderfully received. And, Folks like yourself who really understand the game, it really helps to talk to you about it. Thank you. Well, we love basketball here down in, in uh, South Florida, certainly with the heat, and uh, there's a lot of fans. So this is definitely a book that everybody should get uh, in terms of if you have any interest in the NBA. So, Dan, I know you're really busy, and I really appreciate you coming on Iron Sports and, uh, and talking about Wish It Lasted Forever, Life with the Larry Bird Celtics. Thanks so much, Ira. Enjoy talking to you. Great stuff there with uh, Dan Shaughnessy. So, Ira, what's your plan this week, man? You've really you've done it up the past two weeks. You gonna keep it going? Well, we're gonna see. I, I'm probably. I mean, it's interesting. Maybe the Steelers this weekend. They play the Titans. If I do not go to that, I have to. Or I in Nashville or uh, no? They're playing in, okay, in, in Pittsburgh, so I would go to that game. Or Sunday night, Buccaneers Saints. So it'd be. Pro- I'm probably leaning towards going to see the Steelers Titans, but we'll have to see in terms of what the weather is and those things. But uh, uh, no, I mean, I, it's it's weird. You know, it's great when you get a Thursday night football game to go yeah. and see something. <laughs> we are out of time. Thanks so much to Dan Shaughnessy. He's Ira and Mike. Let's talk next Monday night. Ira on Sports.